Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and Nico Hülkenberg has defied the critics with a strong start to 2023 on his full-time return to F1, with two top 10 qualifying positions and seventh in the Australian Grand Prix. But how has he pulled this off, and what does it say about the value of experience in F1? I'm Ed Shaw, and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Ben Anderson and Val Haringey. Well, Ben Anderson, bringing appropriately enough some F1 experience to this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, from the distant past. Just like Nico Hulkenberg. So maybe maybe this is my year as well. <laughs> well, you're well qualified. I think between us, we, we covered pretty much every race of Nico Hulkenberg's F1 career. So we, we have all bases covered when it comes to him. And also a relatively rare appearance for Val Haringey. Welcome back. What have you been up to of like, that's a big, very broad question for you. Yeah, do you want like the, the day-to-day outline of, you know, where I shop, what I buy? Uh, yeah, I've been been a lot of MotoGP focus, but also obviously still quite involved in, in F1 coverage. So not like a total randomer from the street, like it may sound. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> you do have many strong opinions about uh, about driver selection and young drivers and experienced drivers, though, so that's what's ideal. But do take this opportunity to plug the MotoGP podcast, though. Uh, we have a MotoGP podcast. It's all right. Good plug. The Race MotoGP podcast It's very imaginatively named, so if you like your two-wheel stuff, download that and have a listen to it once, of course, you've finished this one. Well, let's get into it, Val. We'll start with you. Obviously, replacing a former F2 champion with a veteran, as Haas did with Mick Schumacher, having his place taken by Nico Hülkenberg, is actually very much the kind of thing you're prone to disapprove of. So are you surprised with the start Hülkenberg's made? So I'm a little surprised, but not maybe not in the way you're thinking. I'm surprised that Nico Hülkenberg doesn't seem to have suffered much competitive drop-off in being away in his hiatus, basically. I know he's kept up with reserve drives and occasional COVID substitute appearances, but it's it's obviously not the same thing as staying in regularly, as you know, driving the cars regularly, preparing through testing. So I'm a little surprised with how competitive he is straight off the bat. But if you know, if you ask me to take, you know, both of those drivers at their peak, and if you ask me to take even the Nico Hulkenberg who lost his job at the end of his Renault stint, I'm not that surprised because he's good. And I think, you know, I feel a bit smug and vindicated by what we've seen from Nico Hülkenberg so far because I think anyone who's followed F1 long enough, closely enough for the past decade knows that Nico Hülkenberg is good, completely understands why Haas did what they did. And yeah, it's a shame to see a Formula One, Formula 2 champion drop off the grid and maybe Mick Schumacher got a bit of a rough deal, but... It really is not hard at all to understand why Haas did what it did. And it's, you know, playing out before our eyes exactly why it did what it did. And it's it's working. I think the thing that surprised me is quite how unpopular Nico Hülkenberg seemed to be as an option, Ben. Did it surprise you last year by the fact there was a backlash and an outcry would be exaggerating it, but there was quite a lot of social media scepticism, let's put it that way. I think that's probably a bit unfair on 
Nico, I felt that he was unfortunate to kind of miss out uh, in the first instance when Renault were changing its lineup. You know, obviously uh, they had this long-standing relationship with Esteban Ocon. They really wanted him, but there was a, a, a very peculiar situation playing out around the driver market at that time involving people like Carlos Sainz and then Daniel Ricciardo, then Ocon, you know, promises, team bosses falling out, etc. Stroll coming in uh, and kind of banking a seat, you know, come what may. And I think Hulkenberg's stock maybe wasn't quite as high as it could have been. He compared pretty well to Daniel Ricciardo, who was still in his pomp, really, in their final season together at Renault. Um, so I think that the, the, the good driver's always been in there. Uh, I am not surprised that he has been stronger and a bit more consistent than Mick Schumacher. I I always felt that Mick Schumacher was a bit overrated and kind of got into Formula One through Ferrari more because of his name than really because he was an outstanding talent. I'm not saying he's a bad driver, but I'm not surprised that he, he hasn't continued. And I think Hulkenberg, being that kind of COVID superstar, he kept himself sharp, still had some hunger for it. Uh, and I also feel like this f- the way Formula One's gone, I said this, I think, in a, one of our pre-season podcasts when we were trying to anticipate what might happen. I feel like this ground effect here of Formula One and particularly the the more durable, higher energy requirement Pirelli tyres, that suits Nico Hülkenberg much better. I think also the fact that Pirelli's evolved and the cars have evolved to be a bit stronger on the front end this year compared to last season also suits him. And I think he maybe was a victim not totally because obviously you have to adapt as a driver of the former Pirelli era when he was at Force India and being compared to Sergio Perez, those chewing gum Pirelli tyres that suited Perez, that Daniel Ricciardo was a master at uh, manipulating and handling. Hulkenberg never really got on with that. You could you could almost sense how bored he was by Formula One at that point. You know, this idea that you have to drive so far below the car's potential to get to the end of a stint, never mind the end of a race. Never suited him. Um, there was a classic race in uh, example of this, although it was you know extenuated by the problems the team were having. Austria in 2016, Hulkenberg had an outstanding qualifying. I think the session was mixed conditions, but he put the car on the front row, and then he just reversed down the field as the race wore. And of course, that would have happened anyway because the Force India then, although it could take podiums in opportune circumstances wasn't a pure pace podium car but he just absolutely ate through the tires had a ridiculous race and that kind of summed up Hulkenberg in his first F1 career really staggeringly fast but not particularly great at tire management and obviously for most of his career tire management has been a really 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 important skill I mean it's 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 been the tempting sort of stereotype explanation of what you know? How all of us explain what happened to Nico Hülkenberg in Formula One, given his amazing career before Formula One. But it's you know it it might be a stereotype explanation, but it like everything we've seen basically seems to prove it more or less correct that you know uh, all of these characteristics of how F one has been changing have you know not really been the best for him when he started, and maybe sometimes it moved a little bit towards him. But also sometimes it moved a little bit away from him, and obviously the Pirellis have always been clearly a bit of a, a bit of a limitation. 
you know, it's a tempting explanation, but everything we've seen seems to prove it correct. But there's also, we'll get to it later in the podcast, but there's, there is a lack of respect towards his record that is, you know, very specific to a certain reading of Formula One. Just, you know, a note on the driver he replaced, Mick Schumacher. I agree with you that he was overrated coming into Formula One, but my sort of Mick Schumacher hot take that I've gravitated towards increasingly is that the overrating has migrated into underrating while he was actually in Formula One. Not, I guess his fans are still his fans, so they're still the ones who are, you know, will loudly champion him in replies to the Haas Twitter account. But I think the general public... Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the general public may have sort of felt the same backlash, maybe to a different level as, you know, Bruno Senna had, uh, when you have, you know, the famous surname, but you're not, you're not this lights out, amazing transformative superstar that maybe your surname would hint at. I think Mick's actual F1 exploits are slightly underappreciated, I think, some of the harsh rhetoric has struck me as a bit harsh about him, maybe, which is not to say I disagree with the decision. I think the decision to replace him with Nico Hulkenberg is correct. I think they've, they've made the right choice. I just think maybe some of the language has felt a little bit harsh and some of the frankness about it has felt a little bit unusual, but maybe that's what we want. But yeah, that's you know just sometimes how, how F1 is. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily denigrating Mick Schumacher to suggest that Haas did the right thing in bringing in a driver who is much better than I think many people realise. Yeah, well, I always thought that Nico Hülkenberg would score more points than Schumacher would score this year. There's no way of proving that. Mick Schumacher might have finished six three times at the start of the season. I think that's pretty unlikely with the Haas, but you can't say that conclusively, but certainly that was the feel. The interesting point you make about how the parameters of F1 change is, I think, quite relevant. Because obviously, Noka Hulkenberg in his younger days, he was touted as a future world champion. I think there are limitations about how he goes about things, etc., that mean he hasn't capitalised on that. But then he, that puts him in this sort of group of drivers who can be really, really good in the kind of right set of circumstances. And I think you're right that actually the way F1's been for the majority of his career has actually gone against him he's worked to try and improve his tyre management he never got to the level Sergio Perez could in terms of dealing with that rear tyre management and how you change your lines as well as how you're playing with it detecting the tyre slip etc but I think it's very very easy just to underestimate someone who's been in a middling car for the whole career because that's that's where he's been but it's that skill that made him so suitable for Haas they could look at him and think, right, here's a guy who, I think he's now had 98 top 10 finishes between 4th and 10th. I think this was something like his 20th or 21st, 7th place finish. So he's got an absolutely rock-solid pedigree of getting points in midfield cars that are kind of the, at best, probably 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th best car, which which is what they were paying for, really. Uh, experience is an important factor, obviously, and we always talk about it. You know, we always try to assess just how important it is versus that raw rookie pace. But the thing with Hulkenberg is, and his return, it doesn't fit the mold of experience. It's not what you would expect from a 35-year-old driver in Formula One. If you bring in a 35-year-old driver, you expect him to lose half a step in qualifying and then shore it up with consistent point scoring. I think we we see that up and down the grid all the time these past few years 
I mean, the examples are clear. I think Alonso would disagree with okay, you. Yes, right? there are. And you know what? I don't think Alonso over one lap is as quick as he used to be, for instance. I just think he's still quick enough to where it maybe doesn't matter. But it, there are people with a more holistic overview of Fernando Alonso's career who can't argue with me there. But the examples I would bring are, you know, Kimi Raikkonen, later career, later career in Ferrari, but particularly at, you know, Alfa Romeo versus Antonio Giovinazzi. Obviously, Raikkonen was the one bringing home the points, even though over one lap, you wouldn't really say there was a big difference, right? Uh, Sebastian Vettel, I think, is a glaring one. There's a guy who I think just lost his single lap step that he had completely and got mullered by Charles Leclerc. But you could always tell that the gap on Sunday was lesser because you have, you know, that experience that, you know, bridges that gap, but you lose that extra step. And I think right now, actually, we're seeing that at Alfa Romeo with Valtteri Bottas, who is younger than Hulkenberg, isn't it? And quite you know, significantly so. Should be a couple, two or three years, I'm guessing. I should have looked this up before the recording, my bad. He's 33 Bottas, isn't he? And Hulkenberg yeah. is 35. Yeah. yeah. I just, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me that a 35-year-old has returned to Formula One after a couple of years off and he's qualifying this well. There's something about it that goes against my perception of how time in F1 works, which is partly why I'm enjoying it maybe even more than I expected to. It's quite a rare opportunity as well. I think that's part of the problem. I do think that Hulkenberg as a character has mellowed a little bit. Obviously, he's had the years away from Formula One. That gives a slightly different perspective. He's done other things. He had a daughter in, in 2021, I think. So that's shifted his perspective. And I do think, Ben, you've probably got a feel on this. He's, he's certainly mellowed as a character. And maybe that's made his all-round approach a little bit better than perhaps it was at times in his younger days. And he's just relaxed about it. He wants to be there but it's not quite the be all and end all and sometimes that can make things work better for drivers when they don't have this pressure of making a career this is almost a bonus for him yeah and the same phenomenon played out with kevin magnuson right his his now teammate you know magnuson wasn't meant to come back to formula one but russia's invasion of ukraine created a whole domino effect or snowball effect that has led to magnuson getting unexpected second F1 career or third F1 career maybe this is for him now if you take the the weird McLaren uh season and then dropping and then him coming back with Renault so and he spoke about how you know he was more relaxed enjoying it more you know not driving with freedom because it's he sees it as a bonus and I'd imagine it's exactly the same for for Hulkenberg you know he wasn't planning on this wasn't really on the cards and you know, if it wasn't for Daniel Ricciardo having an absolute mental meltdown at McLaren, we probably wouldn't be talking about this because, you know, Ricciardo was the obvious choice for Haas. They would have taken him if he wanted it and was prepared to accept the the terms and conditions and the pay. But he didn't. So Hulkenberg stepped in and is taking the opportunity with, with both hands. Like whether... You know, he's just clicked with, you know, as we've discussed, the way Formula Formula One is right now, plus the way Haas has got its initial 2023 car set. Uh, and whether he can continue this or whether he just plateaus as others get more comfortable or, or work things out or develop the cars or find different setups that work a bit better, I don't know. But it is a great start. And I agree with, with Val, it was slightly... He's slightly overachieved. I thought he would do better than people maybe thought for the reasons I outlined earlier, but I think the the consistency of pace he's shown across the first three races and how he's basically been 
if you divide the field according to his own analysis, i.e. there are kind of five top-ish teams, if you like, and then the rest is just a midfield. There's not really backmarkers anymore because Williams have improved. Now, he's right at the top of that group. Obviously, Alpine and, and Aston kind of set apart and Ferrari and Mercedes drop back a bit depending on the circumstances. But you would say Haas is definitely in that in that fight for kind of sixth best. Whether they can build on that, that's always the big question with that team. It's so under-resourced. But um, Hulkenberg as, as an individual performer has been right at the sharp end of that. And that's maybe a little bit surprising. Yeah, stupid hypothetical question and feel free to cut this if this has been discussed in the past. But uh, if you're imagine you're Gunther Steiner at the end of 2022, as you know, as Ben just put it, and Daniel Ricciardo doesn't actually want to do his hiatus. He's open to a Haas move. So is Nico Hulkenberg. Let's say the financial terms are the same. They wouldn't be, but let's say they are. Who do you take? Yeah, I think you look at Ricciardo. And then I think yeah, the question... Yeah, you, you would take Ricardo. I think. I think the question becomes, who do you drop? Because if the trend continues as it has been and your contracts allow it, then you think actually Kevin Magnussen's the one that you you want to move on. And that, that is an interesting one. What did you make of his performances so far this season compared to Magnussen? He's outpaced him comprehensively. Magnussen did have the point in Saudi Arabia, so he's not been dreadful or anything, but surprised to see that happening? Um, a little bit, yes. I thought... Uh, Kevin drove really well last season on his return. As I said, I, th- I, th- I thought he looked, you know, a much better version of himself, shorn of all the kind of baggage and pressure of the past and seemed to be flourishing. You know, there's a there's a sweet spot, I guess, where you, you, you're not a young driver anymore. Maybe Bottas fits into this category, but you, you enter an environment that allows you to get more out of yourself just before you tip to tip into the point, I think Alonso, I joked earlier, but Alonso is obviously an outlier, a bit of a freak of nature. You tip into this this point where just the sharp edges start to dull a little bit. And it's whether you can kind of keep yourself at that razor's edge before that happens or before you get found out. And I think Kevin also has been slightly uh, unfortunate in that he clearly hasn't quite clicked with the new car and has some work to do to kind of get himself in tune with it. Similar to how we've seen with Carlos Sainz at Ferrari, you know, he start starts each season a little bit kind of lost, certainly over one lap and then figures it out and nails it down and actually looks quite strong. This is a bit more extreme than that, which suggests to me that there's something more fundamental going on. I don't know if Magnussen would be exactly on Hulkenberg's level. I, if you if Hulkenberg's at his best and Magnussen's at his best, you probably would argue that Hulkenberg's slightly ahead anyway. But the gap is bigger than it should be. And I think also Magnussen, in the same way that I feel current Formula One and particularly current Pirelli tyre dynamic and how that intersects with the cars suits Hulkenberg's driving by being quite on the nose and very react, very reactive. Magnussen, when he was at Haas uh, the first time around, paired with Grosjean, they liked very different things from the car. And Magnussen was always more comfortable when the car was a bit more stable, had a bit more of a rear-end bias in terms of grip. Grosjean always wanted the opposite. Well, you get this great situation where Grosjean would complain about understeer and Magnussen would say, no, the car's fine, and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. And it was in that, you know, it was in Magnussen's sweet spot and he had a very, very... 
solid start in 2017 with that team and then 2018 had his best best season and just the the fundamental balance of that car really suited him and I think the general traits of last year's car are more in his last year's cars sorry are more in his range and the stronger front end weaker rear end won't suit him naturally so this is all in a threshold of course but he will have to obviously adapt slightly and try and bring the car perhaps more to how it would have been last season to get the absolute best out of himself. And for Hulkenberg, I think he's he's hit the ground running because the cars are more naturally in his sweet spot. And this could apply to a lot of drivers. I mean, maybe maybe Grosjean would be flourishing if he'd been able to hang around in Formula 1 a bit longer and get into these cars, just as maybe, and it's unfortunate we haven't been able to find out because he decided to take a hiatus, Daniel Ricciardo would have either rediscovered his form by switching teams and just being in a different environment or is there something fundamental about these Formula 1 cars that I mean he isn't ever going to be as quick as he was when he was up against Nico Hulkenberg as a Renault teammate I mean the gaps we've seen it over a single lap I mean some of the gaps we've seen are ridiculous they make, they make no sense they are not sustainable in, in modern Formula 1 the way you know teammates compare but obviously small sample size and early teething trouble and all that I think we did in the past sort of have a comparison between Hulkenberg and Magnussen that was one year separated through a common teammate. And you'll you'll realize I'm talking about Julian Palmer at, at Renault and Lotus and whatever. And obviously that was separated by a major regulation change that seemed to bring out the best of Hulkenberg when it happened. Uh, but obviously the comparison, if you if you sort of ignore that point or account for it, but don't use it to fully explain the situation... Uh, Julian Palmer was not very far off Kevin Magnussen there in their sole season together. And then Julian Palmer, my favorite current F1 pundit, was absolutely demolished by Hulkenberg to the point where he didn't see out the season. It was, it was, it was, it was absolute, I don't know, I don't know what words to use. It was a destruction. Uh, and I think, I think there is a fair interpretation that Hulkenberg's speak is just higher, even when you account for those sort of, you know, those sort of circumstances. Yeah, maybe could be the case. Um, I think you're right in that the 2017 shift to, you know, bigger, faster, you know, more dynamic, although still heavy Formula One cars definitely suited Hulkenberg. You know, he was desperate for that prior era to end. So he would have had a sort of second coming, if you like. I think Magnussen's comparison against Palmer is slightly affected by the fact that team was at the start of the Renault journey, it was chaotic. Magnussen did not enjoy that that year at all. He had suspicions about the way the team was being run, didn't feel he was valued as a driver. You know, he'd already been through a bad situation with McLaren. So I think you saw the worst of Kevin Magnussen in the early part of his career in terms of how he was treated by teams and how he felt about those environments. And then when he went to Haas, where everything was much more simplified and he felt wanted, he flourished. And you know, within a couple of years, he was comfortably outperforming Grosjean. So it kind of depends how these guys intersect at, at certain points. And I'm not sure the Palmer comparison is totally relevant because of just how different one season to the next was. But it does give you an indication. And I guess, you know, fundamentally part of why Hass have made this move is that it will give Magnussen a kick up the backside. You know, he had Mick Schumacher in his pocket, really. Yes, Mick Schumacher could produce the occasional 
fast lap and decent performance, but they were they were f- too few and far between. And it, it felt like Magnussen was kind of cruising a bit through parts of last year, still having performance in hand. And, you know, whether that's fair or not, a motivated Hulkenberg who suits the car and is comfortable is going to perform fairly relentlessly. Um, you know, he's a guy that even Max Verstappen would have been happy to have as a teammate. I don't think because Max feels he would just be comfortably faster than Hulkenberg, although he might be. Uh, it's because he's a driver that he respects and I think drives in more of a similar way to Max. So it would have been quite useful for him to have that kind of similar reference on the other side of the garage. So Magnussen will have to wake up um, and raise his own level certainly compared to the first three races in order to get on terms with Hulkenberg. And of course, if he can do that, and I don't know, but it should be within his capability to get at least closer, then the Haas team will just benefit from that. But he will need to do it quickly because I think fundamentally Haas is in a limited situation where they need to capitalise on the pace advantage they have over other teams in the early part of the season, bank the points. Um, That's what Mick Schumacher wasn't doing. It's what Hulkenberg is doing. Um, But as other teams get their act together and start to introduce upgrades, I think this is where Haas will will start to slip back a little bit. So if Magnussen can't produce some bigger performances early in the season, he could be stuck in a similar situation to the man he beat last year, who probably showed the best of himself when the car was at its least competitive. And, you know, it's hard to stand out and make your case when that happens because you can do the best drive of your career and finish 12th. But if that's all you do, there are no points for that. Nobody will remember apart from you. Well, we can't talk about Nico Hülkenberg without delving into the thing that is always held against him. Ben, obviously, the accusation is he's a journeyman because of that unenviable record, 184 starts now without a podium finish. So proof he's a serial choker who isn't cut out for life, the sharp end of F1. What does that record actually say about him? (laughs) Well, uh, well, mainly that he's actually been a bit unlucky and also that he hasn't driven for a high-quality enough team that he's had enough chances to to bank those podiums um he he should i think have had three or four in his career easy um but for various reasons you know it didn't work out um the most obvious and famous example is brazil 2012 when he was in the fight for victory but he clattered into lewis hamilton and lost a what would have been a nailed on top two or three and had there not been a Fairly needless safety car in that race. He and Button had absolutely checked out on slicks in the damp. They were miles ahead. Yeah, and, and Hulkenberg, you know, he was me- mega at Interlagos and in those conditions as well. So Taylor made for him really. Malaysia A1 GP, remember in the wet there. I know that wasn't slicks in the wet, that was full wet, but he was absolutely brilliant there. That's when he really first caught my eye. Yeah, so, uh, and, you know, the pole lap for Williams... Uh, that was that was slicks in the damp as well, wasn't it? In 2010. Two laps, two laps good enough for pole two in that laps, session. Two laps, yes, of course, timing. yes. Thank you for correcting me. Yes, two, two laps good enough. So a genuine pole in those circumstances. But there were other races too in the in the Force India period. I mean, it's interesting that he's called a journeyman because he hasn't raced for that many teams really when you think about it. Um, Monaco 2016, he could have had 
the podium that Perez had. He was he was screwed over a bit on strategy there. Yeah, he was so he was quick that weekend. He out qualified Perez, who you know is now considered something of a Monaco slash street circuit specialist. It was strategy and safety car timing there, wasn't it? If memory yes, serves. yes, it was. Um, he was you know he was put out by that. So, but that you know that happens in racing, right? But he his performance was certainly good enough to be on the podium. It wasn't it wasn't that Perez did anything particularly remarkable that weekend compared to Hulkenberg that meant he was on the podium. It was just the vagaries, how, vagaries of how the race uh, played out. Um, and also uh, Baku, 2017 and 18 for Renault, both uh, crazy races where Hulkenberger put himself in a really good position in the early stages uh, and managed to uh, take himself out. Um, just minor misjudgment clipping the the wall, I think, uh, on the outside or inside of that chicane just before the, the section that goes past the castle. Um, just inexplicable driver errors, basically. He does have the odd mistake in him like that. That That is something that you see. It's not constant, but there are... It's not, it's not situational. I don't think it's when it's going well. It's just he is a driver that just sometimes has those moments of inattentiveness or something and just catches the wall and that kind of thing. And they were just... No, really, really costly because had he been able to stay in the game of those races, he could easily have ended up on the podium and won or not both of them. So, yeah, he's he's without doubt, in my mind, a podium level, you know, possible race winning driver. He just hasn't quite made the most of the opportunities he has had and also hasn't had that many opportunities to uh, be in cars that genuinely have that potential. The people who use the Nico Hulkenberg no podium stat to define Nico Hulkenberg are, I think, people who, A, don't understand probability theory and statistical variance and the fact that outliers happen sometimes, and B, people who don't really understand or care about Formula One and would be better served watching some version of Formula One. There's only six cars and all of them can finish on the podium. Everybody knows that those were, by and large, not... Well, they were definitely not regular podium cars. They were occasional podium cars through, you know, the vagaries of fate. Uh, Yes, Sergio Perez scored four podiums in in their time together, I think. Nico Hülkenberg scored none. But if that's how you define it, that's, you know, that's just a misreading of the situation. That's, you know, you've cherry-picked a fact. And yes, the fact is there. And the fact does maybe suggest that Hülkenberg has slightly a bigger propensity to buckle under pressure that you know maybe he gets in his head when a good result is on the table but even with those four podiums you compare their points records across the the three seasons they're i think basically identical or at least very 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 close i'm not actually sure which one of them is on top uh, qualifying records too i think very close it's just yeah it's it's just the wrong way to look at it nico hulkenberg for most of his career has not been in in podium machinery and yes, well, he, st- he started 184 races, and if you strip that down to the sample set of races where he could have had a podium finish, it's it's not statistically significant. It's a tiny number. And it is, it is absolutely not. And like, there is, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that if Red Bull went for him instead of Perez at that inflection point, obviously Nico Hulkenberg would have had, and you know, an absolute load of podiums by now and Grand Prix wins. I think. I mean, that 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 strikes me as a fairly obvious conclusion. So it's. It's just a very obnoxious way to judge a really good driver. And it really, you can tell from, from my rhetoric, I think that it really gets to me. Like it's a good way to annoy me to, to bring that up. But- it, it is also partly, there's this belief that drivers are either good or bad. 
if you see what I mean. Whereas yes. my view of it is you have the absolute elite. So you have your Verstappens, Hamiltons, I think Leclerc's in that group as well. There's a number of drivers who I think across a wide range of conditions, they've got a wide operating window, they will have success. And then you have kind of a group of people who are, what I'd sort of say, they're people who can be Grand Prix winners, but they're not necessarily championship winners. And Hulkenberg's in that sort of bucket, I think. He does have his flaws and his weaknesses, but he's stunningly quick and he is an effective Grand Prix driver with a very good CV. Career 2013, brilliant drive to fourth place. If one car ahead happened to retire, then we wouldn't be talking about this right now. He did battle with Alonso and Hamilton in that race in a Sauber and beat them fair and square. Alonso, after the race, said he was superb. So, you know, these things turn on total random acts of fate that are outside of the driver's control. How far back do we need to go to find a race where Nico Hulkenberg probably should have been on the podium? It's not very far at all. It's one week. Nico Hulkenberg <laughs> yeah. should have been on the podium last weekend if things work out just a little bit differently. If I don't remember the exact rule specifics. So basically, if Max Verstappen made it a bit further up, up, up the road before the red flag came out, there's your Nico Hulkenberg podium. Did he do anything different to earn it? No. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of how you rate Nico Hulkenberg maybe is determined by whether you believe in a clutch gene, whether you think there's such a thing as, you know, really clutch performers and how much that actually, you know, changes up levels of performance, how much is at stake, how much drivers can raise their game when more is at stake. I honestly, myself, I don't know where I fall on that spectrum. But even if you're like a really firm believer in that the good drivers, you know, it matters most that the good drivers are at their best when the opportunity presents itself. Maybe that's accurate. Maybe that's just, you know, luck. I think it's more it's more about being able to execute your skills as a driver when the stakes are highest. I always think of it as you've got to, if you can perform like it doesn't matter when it matters most, that's the thing. It doesn't make you better. You know, the, the, the laws of physics define what the car can do. And it's your job to get to ma- the maximum of that. And so it's, it becomes situational. What range of conditions can you get as close to 100% as possible? What percentage of your laps, of your races, of your qualifying sessions are you at that level? I think also he's let down slightly by his teammate comparisons not being against the absolute elite drivers either. So you don't really have a test case of Hulkenberg up against a total out-and-out superstar like you mentioned ed in the top bracket but but he's had he's had some good seasons hasn't he i mean his first season second half of the year against barrichello at williams compared well science science i mean admittedly that full run season for science was probably science's least impressive f1 season pound for pound but he outperformed science there have been kind of good seasons against good drivers and there have been less good seasons against good drivers yeah there's always i think he's consistently performed well but he hasn't made that kind of compelling case where he's absolutely slaughtered a guy that people thought was actually pretty good and changed perception of Formula One for those observers. So no one's going to be looking at the list of drivers and going Hulkenberg is someone we absolutely have to have. You know, he was a little bit behind Daniel Ricciardo, who we now know is not quite in the top bracket. He was comparable with Sainz, who most people would say isn't quite in the top bracket either, although improving. Sergio Perez, as Val pointed out, neck and neck really, albeit during a period of F1 that I think Hulkenberg was a bit less interested and didn't suit him. But nevertheless, you know, Perez is in a top team doing well, but he isn't going to win the Formula One World Championship. He isn't going to be a match 
for Max Verstappen, I would argue that Hulkenberg would probably do slightly better in the Red Bull than Perez is doing. Maybe that's a controversial opinion. But I don't think Nico Hulkenberg would win the world championship up against Max Verstappen in the Red Bull. It's, it's a controversial opinion insofar as that I was not going to proffer it publicly, even though it's something I absolutely 100% believe privately. But yeah. We're not here trying to say that Nick Hulkenberg is the greatest driver in Formula One. Again, when it came down to the fact that he was linked with some of the bigger teams, and a lot of the bigger teams did have a look at him because he was turning in some very good performances. I remember speaking to some of the team bosses and the decision makers. There was a feeling that maybe he wasn't the best behind the scenes, wasn't the best working with a team in terms of how he handled himself, how he worked with people. He's a certain type of character that not everyone gets on with. I think that's that's something that's that's mellowed in him a bit now so there's reasons why he didn't get into the the top car but there's also reasons why he's hung around in formula one for so long and after three years on the sidelines a team needing a good proven driver has said actually this guy's the best option that's also like i guess that's part of it for how i see it is sometimes i'm okay letting those drivers go right your career's over and you've accomplished what you were going to accomplish you've hit your peak your story has been neatly wrapped up. Now make way for new stories. Hulkenberg's ending the way it was before he has now returned, it didn't, it wasn't narratively satisfying for me, given what we know about his talent level. And that's, you know, that's also another reason why I welcomed his return, even though it it maybe is antithetical to what I prefer to see in Formula One, which is, you know, new talent get the opportunities. It's situational and ultimately a team's job is to get the best possible drive lineup they can. And for Haas, he worked. They don't need a world champion in 10 years' time in their car. They need someone who's going to do the job now. And they fit wisely, I think, with Nico Hulkenberg. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Let's just very briefly touch on the value of experience, though, Val. Do you think that just experience in general is a bit undervalued in Formula One? Because there's always this lust to get the next big thing, if you like. And if you're a small team and you can get someone who's the next big thing, you can sell them onto a big team after having a few years of success with them. So you see the appeal. But does the the, the grizzled veteran get a bit of a, a bad rap these days? So I'm going to give you an an annoying and useless answer here, which is that I don't know because I don't think I philosophically understand what it is that I want a small F1 team to accomplish in modern Formula One. 
is there best possible results no but but you see that's it in short isn't it (laughs) then yes then value of experience is undervalued because it's the experienced drivers who will keep their head enough to maximize your points we see it over and over again we see those you know rookie seasons where a rookie compares very well to an experienced driver but it's the experienced driver who brings home the points i mean we just we just see it basically all the time and you know sometimes there are outliers and when we see those outliers it's how we know that the rookie is like properly super ready yeah, I guess Charles Leclerc demolishing Marcus Ericsson at Zauber or whatever. But yes, it is undervalued, but it's also it's a slightly boring way to live because there's just there's that part of me that thinks that smaller teams deserve to be able to go for more than just points. Because ultimately, how many of us remember points? And it's, you know, it's the other side of that Hulkenberg no podiums problem. You can respect his points record, but it's yeah, it's hard to get excited about whatever sixth in the constructors, right? I mean, you can get excited about monetarily, which doesn't even matter as much now in the cost cap, uh, the cost cap era. Um, so yeah, I I struggle. I, I think it is undervalued, but also in terms of excitement and in terms of you know having the next back big thing, and maybe if they're not already val- uh, affiliated with a with a bigger F one team, having that next big thing under contract, so you can then part with the next big thing for compensation that you can quite usefully use elsewhere. That's also kind of cool. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough balance, which is a very boring way to answer it. But Hard for the midfield teams to have much control in this situation either, because usually if they're going to run a driver like Val describes, a young potential superstar, they tend to be on the books of a bigger team already. So they're being farmed out to said midfield team to either blood them in or test them because that manufacturer or bigger team is not sure of the potential. That's what happened with Mick, right? Hass were doing it for Ferrari reasons mainly and Hass and Ferrari got their answer and therefore now Mick is sitting on the sidelines at Mercedes and hoping that something transpires down the line. Leclerc was a similar thing for Sauber, you know, Ferrari affiliated, they were doing a job for Ferrari. So they won't gain much materially out of having those drivers other than hopefully a boost in their competitive standing on that given season. They certainly don't have control over that anymore because it's very hard for a a midfield team to go out and run a strong junior driver program and pick up talents that, you know, it's a competitive field, right? Bigger teams are just going to get their hooks into. Hulkenberg is in kind of that sweet spot for Haas because getting the experienced drivers, well, A, they cost more money because they're experienced. So often you won't be able to afford them or negotiate them down to a, a suitable level to make them employable for that team. And also if they are employable, they tend to be near the end of their careers. So almost washed or heading for that status which means you're not getting the best of them yeah you might learn a few lessons about how they did it with x or y team in the past but you won't be getting the best of them in the car now holkenberg hasn't really been found out against any teammate he's had he's always been you know even if you argue Perez is better one season to the next when they were at force india ricardo was quicker at renault wasn't by much he kind of fell off the grid by accident. Well, that's the and, other thing with teammate comparisons. It's not a, like a zero-sum game whereby one teammate wins, the other loses. It's different to that. So if you're like half a second off on average, then you've been destroyed. But if you're on the yes. wrong side by a much narrower margin, that's a different kettle of fish. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Ricardo's in a terrible situation because of how he compared to Norris. Hulkenberg was doing absolutely fine and his F1 career ended prematurely, briefly, uh, for reasons outside of his control to a certain extent. Um, certainly there was no disgrace in any of the performances he gave. So by virtue of him having an enforced break and then being hungry to return and then has happening to have an opening, they are able to get hold of a driver who's been in some bigger teams than Haas. They get the benefit of of his experience. He hasn't dropped off in terms of performance yet. And also he won't be massively expensive because he's been out of the game for a couple of years. He's hungry to get back in and he's probably thinking, you know what, I'll take it even if it's a lower salary than I might have commanded had I been at a bigger team or or racing consistently. So it's a rare opportunity um, and one you know, has has made the right call with, to be honest, because um, Hulkenberg is giving you the almost the perfect blend of experience and pace. There isn't really a, a downside to that choice for them. No, I, I think what Ed said about, you know, drivers, teammate comparisons not being a zero-sum game, I think that's, you would have that in a perfect world, but I think the way maybe sometimes F1 works is I would argue it's like a negative sum game, if that makes any sense. Uh, let me try to explain what I mean. Either one driver has beaten the other, the other driver has beaten that one, or sometimes both drivers have performed too close to where neither really stands out, and so nobody's really too excited about them, which I think we've seen many a time at various sort of backmarkerish teams. I do think Nico Hulkenberg was a little bit damaged goods after his Renault exit, slightly, because uh, it was obviously a bit circumstantial, but actually he did get beaten by Daniel Ricciardo and also then didn't help that Daniel Ricciardo went to McLaren to get absolutely demolished there. Um, so in a way, it sort of feels to me like Haas has, uh, I use this verb all the time, maybe wrongly, but Haas has sort of moneyballed it. It's seen a damaged goods, lower value opportunity, and it's seen the the surplus value it can get from from this driver who is clearly exactly right but maybe has taken a knock to his reputation relatively recently it doesn't really correspond to his actual ability level so sort of they they i think they found surplus value in nico hulkenberg as 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 ben puts it so yeah that's you know they've done completely right they're this move will maximize their available points hole i think i don't think anybody else better was available in terms of racking up the points but it, it, it still comes back to my whole thing of, you know, junior drivers, what we really expect midfield teams to do, what we expect them to target. Will there be a future in Formula One when midfield teams can sign drivers not for maximizing points, but for, you know, gunning for the glory and winning races? And maybe, you know, because you'd rather have a, a race win than 50 points, I think, rather than 50 points scored through five top five finishes. That's that's how I would. That's how I see well, Formula ask, One. Ask Williams about Pastor Maldonado's 2012 season. Yeah, I was still. <laughs> you still remember argument. it? It's, yeah, it's I more guess, memorable, but, but yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting balance though, and the team's outlook and characteristics play a big part because at Haas, the decision maker on drivers is Gene Haas. Gunter Steiner's got a lot of control of that team, but Gene Haas likes to make the driver decisions, and Steiner sounds them out, and Ben can go to Gene Haas and say, right, these are the options. And Gene Haas makes the decision. And certainly there's been a feeling that that the rookie path hasn't really paid off for them when they had Mazepin and, and Schumacher, obviously. Just because some rookies don't work out doesn't mean no rookies work. And I also think that that team, it's not as pronounced a problem as it used to be, but it was a team that 
wasn't necessarily stunning in terms of the tools and the data analysis it had. And I think having an experienced driver helps them a little bit because I still think there are little bits catching up. They're still they're still a moderately new team. So I think an experienced driver at Haas is maybe slightly more useful than an experienced driver in a, a comparable team down the order. I mean, you're not insulting them by saying that because that was the whole reasoning expressed by Gunther Steiner in ex- explaining the signing. They they still, you know, they like to lean on that whole new team, slightly incomplete team type of logic when they're asked well why haven't you signed like joseph newgarden or something like that or why haven't you gone for a rookie and maybe you know what that doesn't need to be meritless would charles leclerc have been fast-tracked to ferrari after one season if he was debuting with haas instead of zauber because leclerc did do some sessions with haas and they weren't keen on him at all which actually i think that was a mistake because i think there's when you've got someone like leclerc that's when i think when you're a smaller team if you can get someone like leclerc you go for it because he's someone who's right up there. And that first season he had with Sauber was absolutely stunningly brilliant. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting point, I think, that, uh, that you make there. But just then to sort of finish off, we're talking about this experience, inexperience. There's an interesting counterpoint, AlphaTauri, yes, which is a team that was set up to be running an experienced drivers. But you've got Nick De Vries there, who's this curious kind of rookie, but rookie with experience, 28-year-old, a Formula E champion, not coming out of the junior ranks directly so he's been a professional driver so he was kind of seen as this nice fusion of rookie and experience but he's also struggled up against Yuki Tsunoda so I guess that's an interesting counterpoint to the Haas approach. Yeah I think with Nick DeVries difficult situation to go into because Alpha Tauri they're not getting on with these new regulations I feel like both last season and this has kind of fundamentally exposed some technical limitations there. I mean, you've got Franz, Dost, Franz Tost sounding off about his his own technical staff in press conferences because he's so furious that his uh, annual claim of targeting fifth in the championship is going to be unattainable because the the targets they've hit are too low or the car isn't producing the, the downforce that the numbers said it would. So, you know, you could argue that he's jumped from what people considered F1's worst performing team in Williams to F1's new worst performing team. But we don't yet see an outlier set of circuits where the Alpha Tauri will just jump up in performance. You know, the Williams problems are quite specific and they've targeted having a, a low drag missile car that will be, I guess, like the early Force Indias were mega in certain circumstances, Spa, Monza, Canada. And there's your chance to really hit hit the points and now of course you know with some aerodynamic testing restriction advantages maybe Williams are clawing a bit back making even without a technical director sensible decisions against their nearest opposition and De Vries is in a team that's kind of floundering a bit that doesn't have one really obvious problem to fix but just a kind of confluence of general underwhelming combinations in the car Sonoda's getting a bit more out of it. I think that's quite clear, but he's been in that team for a while now. So, you know, he's got the benefit of true experience. De Vries is obviously an older driver um, with experience, but not really that much in Formula One. He's been overlooked many times. There's probably reasons for that. Um, I'm not saying he's not got ability, but I think he's almost been over-promoted on the basis of 
Helmut Marko seeing one outstanding performance in the sort of circumstances that Helmut Marko likes to see one-off outstanding performances. He loves the idea of you just drop this driver into a completely random championship that they don't have much experience or any experience in it and they just blow everyone away and then that's it. That's proof that they're a hidden talent or potential megastar and I'm not saying for one minute that Nick de Vries didn't do an outstanding job deputising for Alex Albon at Monza but that was also one of the peak Williams circuits. So he's kind of had the benefit of being exactly in the right place at the right time and good luck to him, but he's dropped into absolutely the wrong place at the wrong time to to have his full season F1 debut, I think. Yeah, I mean, with, with, with Nick De Vries, I think the big question for me is Yuki Tsunoda, a driver I still don't entirely get and understand in terms of F1 capabilities because... I, it feels like there was this expectation that De Vries will be level with Tsunoda immediately or even much better right away at AlphaTauri. And I don't think there was ever particularly strong evidence for that or strong reason to expect that. Yes, there is a huge like life experience gap. Nick De Vries has been in, in a variety of programs. He's, oh, this will sound stupid, he's been on this earth for longer, which you know is not <laughs> nothing because obviously something that gets highlighted about Yuki Tsunoda quite often is that he's still you know a bit immature and raw as a sportsman uh but what we're seeing right now i mean that's that's kind of what what we would have expected isn't it i mean yuki tsunoda isn't some schlub he's a he's a driver that red bull has long maintained has you know that extra something that can be accessed maybe not quite often enough for their liking but is you know is there and is something that they want to coax out with with more and more time with yuki tsunoda I'm I'm not entirely shocked that Tsunoda is ahead of De Vries right now. If anything, there's like a, a small part of me, I think, that maybe expects him to be a bit further ahead. And we'll see whether more experience within the AlphaTauri setup will help De Vries and, you know, combine that experience with the experience he had in the past of the various championships, programs, etc. And really properly close the gap and maybe even establish himself as team leader. But what I'm seeing right now is, I mean, that's that's kind of what I what I would have what I would have expected, what I would have told you is the likeliest outcome in my eyes coming coming into the season. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't expect too much from Nick DeVries. I think if the situation at that team was calmer uh, and a bit more like the pre ground effect era, then I think you could expect some some better results and better performances earlier. But I think as much as this is a great opportunity for De Vries to just have a crack at F1 and absolutely he did the right thing to put himself uh, in the frame and take the opportunity. Also, this is a slightly desperate move from Red Bull. It's not like they're absolutely blessed with talents knocking on the door of Formula One. You know, they wanted a guy from IndyCar that the uh, license, super license rules uh, forbade from happening. So he's not even their first choice. Um, not even really their second choice, I don't think. So, you know, there's a bit of scrabbling around, I think, to fill the seat. And you know, Marco's latched onto that one performance, which was outstanding, but was only one performance. You know, we we talked about judging Hulkenberg and Magnussen over a small sample set of three races. We're talking about one race. And it's great for De Vries that it's given him a shot that he seemed to have missed um, because of when he was up and coming and doing well in F2, etc., and not being perhaps quite in that outstanding bracket, you know, McLaren had him 
on their books for a while didn't persist. You know, there were other talents that kind of leapt ahead in the queue. I think he's a Formula One level driver capable, but I'm not sure he's somebody who's, you know, going to take Alpha Tauri to the next level or start knocking on the door of Red Bull. He's just someone who who's filling a seat really while um other things play out and Red Bull gets its house in order. There's nothing wrong with that either. Be- you know, best of wishes to Nick DeVries. And, you know, obviously if he does access, say, his, you know, his form as a karting world beater and that translates into F1 a little bit, then lovely. And it's good for F1 and it's good for everyone involved. But I, I do have to share sort of a small anecdote that I remember, you know, all of us watching the Bahrain opener and in, in the work chat, I I texted something like, guys, this is giving me Brendan Hartley vibes. And a lot of people are like, okay, it's one weekend. Calm down. Stop it. Uh, let's see. But look, if it's still Brendan Hardley vibes after 10 rounds, and that's a, that's a big problem. It's it's a difficult scenario for him. Obviously, you've got to give him some time, but Sonoda is driving well. So that's a difficult comparison for him at this stage. I think Sonoda's taken a bit of a step this year as well. So it does show that there are always risks with rookies. Often a driver like that, sort of the next big thing, even if they're an older one like that, I don't think anyone's necessarily saying Nick DeVries is going to be a future world champion. But people were saying, well, he could be a future Red Bull driver. So there was a little bit of a feel for that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly they're going to breeze in. And I think there were reasons why people felt Nick DeVries might not necessarily be the best possible choice for an F1 seat, even going back a few years. Ed, uh, Ed Zauber, you know, the first two races of the Leclerc Ericsson season... Ericsson was was the quicker one. Then things happened, and you know things you know things change in Formula One. Maybe Nick DeVries will still be a five time champion with Red Bull in the five coming years. I don't know. Yeah, you know, we have to. Keep I'm going to say no. He won't be, but uh, okay, he that, probably not won't many. Be, yeah. Not many drivers can be world champion, but yeah, there's there's still plenty of time and and good luck to him. So you always want to see drivers fulfilling their their potential in in Formula One. Ultimately, that's better for everybody. Well, thanks very much to Ben and Val for your insight some lively conversation there about Haas and Hulkenberg head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there check out our other podcasts including the MotoGP podcast which often stars Val or I could say even always stars Val I'm not sure what your overall frequency is yeah so if you want if you want weekly dose of Val and who wouldn't then the MotoGP pod is the way to go and also have a look at our YouTube channel well there may be a big gap in the season right now But we're going to keep podcasting, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.